Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I am Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Next up on the conference preview episodes is the Group of Five and Notre Dame to discuss each Group of Five conference. From the American Athletic Conference to the MAC is Chris Vanini from the Athletic. We'll keep it on the field and away from conference realignment and talk about what Cincinnati can do for an encore after becoming the first team from outside the Power Five to make the playoff last season. Can Houston or UCF push the Bearcats off the top of the AAC? In the Mountain West, Boise is trying to bounce back from an uncharacteristically lackluster season, and San Diego State is trying to take over as the conference's most consistent contender in a brand new stadium. The Sun Belt is breaking in a bunch of new teams in what should be an interesting East Division race. Conference USA, on the other hand, is likely to be dominated by outgoing members. As for Notre Dame, Pete Sampson from The Athletic jumps on to talk about expectations for the Irish in Marcus Freeman's first season as head coach. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on APPodcast.com, where you can find my colleague Rob Motti's NFL Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute, give us a good review and a good rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans, and away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is Chris Vanini from The Athletic. Nobody, absolutely nobody, does a better job at covering everything Group of Five than Chris. And, you know, listen, some of us cover teams, some of us cover the country, some of us cover individual con- conferences. But, like, again, you have five conferences with a lot of teams that you dig very deep into. And we're going to dig deep into, or, you know, as deep as we can, try to squeeze it all in in, in about an hour into these five conferences with Chris. Thank you so much for doing this today, Chris. Yeah, good to be here. You know, at, at a time that we're all talking super conferences and realignment and all the stuff at the top, it's a good reminder that there's a lot of uh, enjoyable football at the group of five level, even if they don't like being called the group of five from time to time. Uh, it should be another really good season at, at this level. You know, they're coming off of Cincinnati making the playoff and, uh, it's pretty wide open this year, so it should be fun. Yeah, and just, you know, listen, we, we've on the conference previews, we've tried to steer away, for the most part, from conference realignment talk. We may have to remind you all who is in these conferences this year because there's <laughs> yes. a lot of movement that's to come. We're, we're sort of in a, in a flux couple of years here. Uh, but so, again, we'll try to remind you who's in these conferences. Still a lot of good teams. And especially starting in – got to start with the American – American Athletic Conference has sort of established itself as the, I don't know, the dominant, but the premier of the group of five conferences. Mountain West may push back on that. But last year, for the first time, Cincinnati makes the playoff out of a, a group of five conference. Um, let, let's start with Cincinnati. I think we have to start with Cincinnati and the AAC. Uh, they had a magical year. And also lost about seven or eight guys to the draft. Lost the core of what was a really good football team. Is there a chance for um, an encore that would look 
somewhat similar to last year. And I guess the the follow-up to that is who else is in the AAC that's going to challenge Cincinnati this year? So so there's two different parts of, of that Cincinnati kind of question. One is obviously they got to replace a ton of star power. You lose Desmond Ritter, quarterback, Jerome Ford at running back, uh, Sauce Gardner at quarterback, uh, cornerback, Kobe Bryant at quarterback. These are elite level All-American type of players. And that's a that's a big challenge. There's there's a quarterback battle going on between Evan Prater and Ben Bryant. Prater is a former four-star recruit, one of the, the highest rated quarterback recruits the school's ever had. Ben Bryant is a former Cincinnati quarterback who transferred to Eastern Michigan, started a good chunk of last year, and transferred back as a grad transfer. Uh, so, so that quarterback battle is going on. And they're still kind of looking for maybe a bell cow at running back. So there are personnel questions. The other part is the schedule. Look, one, one of the reasons Cincinnati made the playoff last year was because they went to Notre Dame and beat the fighting Irish. That ended up being the big thing they needed to do. Well, on week one, Cincinnati happens to go to Arkansas. So we're opening up with an SEC road game that will be one of maybe the most underrated week one games, I'd, I'd probably say. Uh, and, and then they've got since uh, Indiana a few weeks after that. So they've got two power five games on the schedule again. So if they go undefeated again, they could have a case, mm-hmm. um, but it's going to be a lot harder to go undefeated because of what they have to replace. Yeah. And, and again, within the conference, they face challenges as well. Now, last year, um, you know, last year it seems like the, the in-conference schedule broke okay for them. If I remember, they caught UCF kind of earlier when UCF was – in fact, if you remind me, Chris, didn't they, they caught yeah. UCF after Dylan Gabriel got hurt, right? Yes. UCF dealt a ton of injuries last year. I covered that game actually in Cincinnati, and the Bearcats blew the doors off of them. That, that was still when UCF was trying to figure things out post – Dylan Gabriel injury post a few other things. So they, they got some breaks that way. They didn't have to play Houston in the regular season. And once again, they don't have to play Houston in the regular season this year. Uh, that is a benefit. Houston is probably the second most likely team to win the American to, to win the group of five spot. They bring a ton back under Dana Holgerson. They nearly won the American last year, obviously went to the championship game, but Cincinnati's schedule, they have to go to SMU and to UCF back-to-back weeks late October, uh, those are going to be obviously two massive games. So the schedule breaks a little bit, not as favorable as it did last year. Yeah, so Houston was had a really interesting season last year and, again, sets up to maybe be even better this year. You know, it's it's funny. Dana Holgerson made that move from West Virginia to Houston, raised a lot of eyebrows, you know, caught a lot of people's attention. Then the first couple of years, it was jagged, right? It, it's, it's you know, the De'Ara King situation, redshirting a bunch of guys, then a bunch of those guys. Then De'Ara King leaves, and there was this, oh, well, is this really going to work? <laughs> like, what happened over there? with Dana and then you know credit to Dana really I mean he had sort of a long-term plan and it all sort of came together last year um actually let let me let me put it to you this way do you think you can make a case that that Houston and not you and not Cincinnati should be the favorite in the AAC this year Uh, you could Uh, I mean I I wouldn't be against it I just it's hard to pick against Cincinnati they're coming off two straight championships two straight group of five new year six appearances they're coming off the playoff um 
you know, I put them very close together. Houston is, I, I've since then is the favorite, but Houston just right behind there. And a guy you're probably going to hear a lot more of this year. You, you knew him last year, but he didn't get a lot of hype is Clayton Toon, the quarterback who some people think he could be one of the top quarterback outside of that Bryce Young, CJ Stroud top tier. People think Clayton Toon might be able to get into that next level there. Uh, we, I always remember when Daniel Olgerson got the job at Houston, he was furious that the previous coaching staff had played Clayton Toon in the bowl game that they got blown out by Army where Major Applewhite eventually got fired because that crossed off the extra year of eligibility for Clayton Toon for the next year. He ended up getting that year back because of the COVID waiver, so it all worked out. But he, he's a guy who's been there for a while now, worked his way up, and now could probably be the best quarterback in, in the conference and and potentially get into that kind of upper tier group in the country. Okay, so unfortunately, a group of five fans and AAC fans, we can't go through every single team. I'm just want to warn everybody. However, there's a we're, so we're going to hit some groups and do give some broad questions for uh, Chris and and probably and hit some individual teams as we do this. Um, but there is one more team that I, I think I need, we need to dig into a little bit here in the AAC, and that is UCF, because UCF was the standard bearer. In some ways, UCF may you know, sort of put a crack in that glass ceiling when it comes to a group of five teams making the playoff. They didn't get through themselves, but I think they got enough people's attention in a couple of years under Scott Frost that it, it helped recalibrate expectations and set a bar that, that Cincinnati could then clear. UCF has fallen off a little bit, certainly not, you know, certainly not in a major way, um, but they haven't been able to replicate that success. They bring in Gus Malzahn last year, and a lot of people look at that and go, hey, listen, Gus is a pretty darn successful coach. He's won some a lot in the SEC. This could be a really good marriage. Last year's injuries derail, and I, I find myself wondering are we now maybe overlooking UCF a little bit? In other words, is there a gear here? Are we forgetting how good UCF could be? This is a a school that recruits at a very high level, you know, compared to its competition. So is, are we looking at, you know, everybody jumping back on the Gus bus or are we going to look at the end of this year and think, boy, you know, UCF and Gus may, maybe not as, as a marriage made in heaven like we thought. You know, it's funny when Josh Heupel left to take the Tennessee job and Gus Malzahn came in to take the UCF job, a lot of people thought, hey, UCF upgraded here. A lot of people thought maybe Tennessee should have took a look at Gus Malzahn and because and, in losing Josh Heupel was maybe not the, the better move. But both teams, I think, performed higher than expected given the situations. Josh Heupel obviously did a good job at Tennessee and he's got seems to kind of have things going there. So that worked out for them. And UCF, you know, they took a step back, but they still won nine games. And that was without Dylan Gabriel for most of the season. That was without several starting running backs, starting wide receivers, and and, and various other players. They beat Florida in the bowl game. You know, that was a a real stamp moment for them. So I think we are overlooking UCF. They've added a lot of transfers. I think they have the number two transfer class in the group of five. They've lost some transfers as well. But this is a team that, if they're healthy, the skill the skill talent there is elite. It it, it all it often always is at UCF. The, the the running back position, the wide receiver position, a lot of speed. They just need to figure out the quarterback spot. Is it going to be Mikey Keene 
who stepped in last year and did okay, or is it going to be uh, John Rice Plumley, the former Ole Miss quarterback turn receiver who's now back at quarterback, who kind of fits that running quarterback that Gus wants? So I do think we're under. I think I do think we're overlooking UCF a bit. Okay, so the AAC and really, frankly, with a lot of the Group of Five conferences, they they these conferences, it's not uncommon for them to produce surprise teams like the the ability to be upwardly mobile in these conferences is usually pretty good. Um, I think SMU is still a contender in this conference, even though with uh, with a new coach, Rhett Lashley, though I think that should be an, an interesting and good transition. Uh, Memphis always has a lot of talent, and the Ryan Silverfield era uh, has been uh, a little bumpy uh, with the, with a rough COVID year, and but showing some signs last year. So those two teams always have the ability to be really good because they tend to recruit well for the re- compared to the rest of the conference. But let's look at the, the 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 teams outside of that tier of the conference. Is there one in particular that you look at and go, if I'm looking for a surprise contender, like a serious contender, someone who you know everything comes together here, they could push to win the league or maybe play in the league title game. Where in the ACC is that surprise contender? I, I don't know about contending for the league championship, but the team I'm going to keep an eye on is East Carolina, who went seven and five last year, five and three in the league, tied for third in the conference. And they, a couple years back, they were an incredibly young team when Mike Houston takes over. And a lot of people pointed toward 2021 as the year it was going to turn around when all those young guys on defense were, were going to be juniors and seniors. And that would be the turnaround year. And it was, you know, they, they go seven to five, maybe not as high as they expected, but now you still got that COVID year. And so Holton Naylor's the quarterback is back yet again. He's been there forever. <laughs> and yes. so East Carolina is now a very experienced team and it's had success last year. So ECU is the team I think could, could spoil a lot of things and, and potentially if things bounce the right way, maybe make a run of their own. Let's move on to the mountain West where, the the an interesting thing has happened since Boise joined the conference, and that is Boise's always really good. Uh, they slipped off a little bit last year. The worst year the the uh, the, the the program has had, I guess, in about twenty years, but it was still a pretty yeah. pretty good year. Um, but what hasn't happened is Boise hasn't dominated the Mountain West in the way a lot of people thought that they might, where like literally winning the conference every year. They're always in the running and they often play for the conference title, but they haven't won it every year, which I I guess I think, you know, to a certain degree speaks highly of the rest of the Mountain West. Boise's still a very good program, but there's always seems to be challengers there in the Mountain West. San Diego State has been maybe the most prominent of the challengers in recent years. So uh, we're always going to consider Boise a contender. San Diego, San Diego State has sort of moved into a position where it deserves a lot of respect. It will always be looked at as a contender. Uh, who are the other like who do you view as the two uh, prime candidates to play in the league championship game? Well, Boise and Fresno State are the two media picks coming out of media days earlier this week. Um, Boise, I think, has been picked to win its division nine straight years now. So, uh, obviously, they're still a favorite there. But that mountain division is tough because Utah State won the conference last year. You know, they, they came out of nowhere to go 11-3, and three, 
beat San Diego State in the in the in the championship, beat Oregon State in the bowl game, and they've got their quarterback uh, back. You know, Blake Anderson's second year. They kept almost the entire staff intact. They got to find some new receivers and, and a cup fill a couple other holes. But I think Utah State is obviously way ahead of schedule from where they were. Air Force quietly once again won ten games last year. Uh, they they have they had a lot of off season surgeries to keep players like quarterback and running back that Troy Calhoun was telling me we may not be fully healthy until mid October or so. So Air Force will be interesting early on, but they're always a solid program. And then Boise, those are the three teams. I think that'll contend in the, in the mountain division. And then in, in the West division, San Diego state, uh, they got the transfer quarterback from uh, Virginia tech um, name, name slips me, but you know, they're always solid. Oh, they're strong on defense. Yeah. Yes. Brock Burmeister. Yeah. Yes. Um, they will be strong. Once again, they go 12 and two last year, uh, but just can they have enough offense to kind of get through that hump? That's what we don't know. And Fresno state, Jake Hayner is back. He, he, again, he'll be one of the top quarterbacks in the country. Again, outside of that Bryce Young, CJ Stroud type tier. Jake Hayner obviously entered the transfer portal when, when Kalen DeBoer, the head coach, went to Washington. Hayner decided to come back, stay once Jed, Jeff Tedford got the job. Because Hayner originally committed to go from Washington to Fresno State for Jeff Tedford. Then Tedford steps down because of health issues. Kalen DeBoer takes over. So those are the five teams I'm looking at that will contend for uh, for the Mountain West, it, I, I want to sit on Boise for a second here because again, they they sort of you know I'll you know I'll make a I'll use my own my own uh, term again. To a certain degree, Boise was right. Boise was Cincinnati and UCF before those teams established themselves. They were the BCS buster, right? They again they sort of set the standard for teams on the outside looking in, trying to break through the gra- the glass ceiling. Um, there has absolutely been a little bit of a drop off, but only when you look at the drop off from the golden era of Kellen Moore. And I don't know if that's even replicable anymore. I mean, that might have just simply been a moment in time, but nonetheless, it's a program that is humming along, that has hummed along pretty well. I, I say all that to say, um, with Andy Avalos there, I can't imagine there's going to be a ton of patience, right, for. Um, for another eight-win season or a nine-win season. like Not to say that Avalos is on the hot seat in year two, but I, I do wonder like what, 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 is the, what are the expectations there at Boise and what is the, would there be an existential crisis if they are, again, just another decent Mountain West team and not a team that wins double-digit games? I think existential crisis is a good way to put it. Look, we, we, we had a minor conversation on Twitter the other day when I saw a photo of um, the Boise State-Virginia Tech game in 2010 to open the season, and Boise State was preseason number three. <laughs> and and that, that just felt like a completely different time thinking back to, to that era. Yeah, seven and five last year, not good, really not good. And that was supposed to be – uh, an upswing team for Boise state. That was a very experienced team across the board and they struggled. They had wins against BYU and Fresno state, but they also had some losses that they, that they shouldn't have. So they come into this year with a good chunk of talent atop the depth chart, but a lot of questions about depth at places like running back and wide receiver and, and a quarterback. If Hank Bachmeyer gets hurt because he gets hit all the time and so, yeah, you know, if, if they don't, 
if, if it's an eight win type of season, I don't know if Andy Zavos is going to get fired. Cause I don't think Boise state really has the money to maybe make a change like that. But this is a year where it kind of, we'll, we'll kind of see, Hey, is Boise now just another program? Is that era truly gone? And I don't think anybody expected that Andy Avalos is former player there, long time assistant there. He comes in from Oregon. He knows the place, you, you, you know, they've, Boise has sustained success from from Dan Hawkins to Chris Peterson to Brian Harson, and last year was a big drop off. So there is a lot of pressure to turn that around. And Andy Avalos told me he's that halfway through the year we figured things out. You know he felt, and so they think that momentum, what they learned midway through the year in his first season. They hope that will continue this year. They also had a weird year, and they lost a few games that you kind of walked away going like, "How'd you lose that?" Uh, I mean, like, you know, in a bad call in the Oklahoma State game where they beat Oklahoma State, which turned out to be a top 10 team. So, well, yeah, and they, they missed the field goal, you know, that would have won that game. They lose that one by one. They they uh, they give up a, a late score to UCF in the opener. You know, there, there were a lot of games that last season that could have gone the other way. I, I had a coach in the Mountain West tell me that he thought Boise should have won 10 games last year. Well, and, and they, he thinks it, and thinks they will again. And they had quality wins against some of the good teams in the conference. Like they 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 put you know real strong performances and wins against some of the good teams in the conference. So it was a weird year and we'll see if it was a blip on the radar. Of course, I can't help but throw this out there like the possibility of what happens if Brian Harson gets fired at Auburn <laughs> and and Boise goes 7 and 5, 8 and 4 again. I what kind of what 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 kind of interest would there be in a in a reunion there? Anyway, I'm just throwing that out there pure speculation. So within this conference, so I have again, not maybe as a contender but I, I have my eye on one particular team sort of like not among the contenders that I, I think could take a big step forward. It's hard to say like UNLV had the best two-win season in the in the country because what the hell does that mean? But boy, they were in a lot of games. They were. <laughs> and, and there should I, I suspect there could be a big step forward there where you might get from two to six, which would be a big deal for UNLV. But when you're looking at sort of the non-contenders and looking for teams that might be able to be surprised, and again, maybe not win the conference, but contend, get in the mix there, where are you going? I'm going to be really interested in Colorado State, which made the rare move of a group of five team hiring from within its own conference. Jay Norvell took Nevada to several bowl games, the most success it had had in the Mountain West, you know, since since the, the Colin Kaepernick days. And he jumps from Nevada to Colorado State from an eight win team to a three win team. And the reason is because a lot of people think Colorado State has always had the 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 resources to be much better than it is. It's got it opened a new stadium a few years ago. It's got really nice practice facilities Fort Collins is a really nice place. And so he's got a lot more resources to work with. He brought a, a good chunk of his staff there, including the offensive coordinator, Matt mummy. Now the quarterback situation this year, I last, I checked everybody on the roster is a freshman. So it might be some growing pains in that first year, but, but maybe not. They've got, they've got an air raid kind of throw it around offense. I think Colorado State will be a really interesting team. Again, maybe plays spoiler a little bit uh, to some teams this year. Yeah, so the Mountain West, again, uh, some some real parity. Well, uh, parity, but in a good way. Uh, again, I think that the, the simple fact that you have multiple teams that could possibly win this conference, I don't know. If I was to press you on who would be the – if there was uh, – if we don't think – 
Houston or the top AAC team wins that group of five uh, spot in a New Year's Six Bowl, who out of the Mountain West do you think is most capable, not just of winning the conference, but of having that sort of magical season where they where they end up in, gosh, what would be the group of five game this year? I should know this. What's the, where are those team, that team going to land this year most likely? Well, last year it was going to be the – I don't remember which one it was. That's it. it. See, Cincinnati, it Cincinnati threw us off here. <laughs> yeah, the playoff kind of threw us off. It, it was supposed to be the Fiesta, I think. Yeah, because it was Peach and it went to Fiesta. So I think this year would be Cotton. I think this year is Cotton. That sounds, about, sure. that sounds about right. Cotton. So anyway, out of out of the Mountain West, which team do you think is most likely where it could all come together and you're 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 the you're the best G five team in the country? I, I'm looking at San Diego State because they, they they've been consistent. You know, they're a known commodity. They're, they're always they're always solid. And this year's schedule is a bit tough. They open up going to Utah, which they beat Utah last year. Uh, Utah obviously went on to win the Rose Bowl. Um, they got to travel to Boise State. They got to travel to Fresno State. So that's a little bit difficult, but defense usually travels with you. In, in San Diego State, they had a lot of COVID issues going into the Mountain West Championship game last year. They There's a chance they win that if that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm going to say San Diego state, they're, they're not the sexy pick, you know, Fresno state's got Jake Hayner. Some of these other teams have quarterback plays, but I'm going to say San Diego state, just because they're, they're always there. They have not yet broken through. They're back on campus this year. They opened the new stadium on the former side of Qualcomm stadium. They spent the past two years playing home games, like two hours away in Carson. So they'll be back home this year. Uh, that'll help too. So I'm, I'll say San Diego state. Okay, so as we said, you know, there's going to be a, a whole bunch of realignment that is going to shuffle up some of these conferences. In the some of it is still to come, right? Houston and Cincinnati, UCF, they're still AAC schools for another year, and the AAC gets to tout those 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 teams that will soon be Big Twelve schools. Um, but there has been some movement that is going into effect this year. Uh, and this is where we might need to remind you who is where and, and, and who's playing in which conference when we get to the Sun Belt. Because the Sun Belt, while teams were making moves for the future and, you know, hey, you know, we're going to be 2025, we're going to move into our new conference, and 2024, we're going to move into our new conference, the Sun Belt went out, made a bunch of moves, and they are effective this year. The Sun Belt's got. A bunch of former Conference USA teams, including Marshall and Southern Miss in the conference. Also, James Madison, which they brought up from FCS. They were FCS power, and now they're in the Sun Belt. And the Sun Belt has sort of aspired to be the best of the G5 conferences. Now, I still have some doubts about that, and that's what, again, we're not going to get too deep into conference realignment stuff. There, I don't know if there's going to be enough revenue coming into those, those leagues, uh, that league, to really challenge the AAC uh, in a big way in future years. But the fact of the matter is they got some really good football programs that attract some good coaches, and especially in the Sun Belt East, where you have Appalachian State and Coastal Carolina. Appalachian State is still one of the best G5 programs in the country. Coastal Carolina is is still on a heater and brings back its coach in Jamie Chadwell and its quarterback in Grayson McCall. So I've said all that to lead up to, hey, let's talk about the Sun Belt. Um, where are the two? Con- where are the contenders on the East side? And then we'll head over to the West, where again they lost their big star coach. Yeah, well, one other thing about realignment, I'll say 
I would venture to say that no group of fans are more excited about realignment than the Sunbelt. They <laughs> are ecstatic about those four teams that they added and the regional rivalries that it's doing. The Sunbelt is doubling down on regionality. And they say, we're going to get a lot of people to come to our games. Appalachian State just sold out season tickets. James Madison uh, has sold a ton of season tickets. So it's an interesting opposite strategy. And I'm going to Sunbelt Media Days uh, pretty soon here and, and planning to kind of do something on that. As for the contenders, James Madison is not eligible because it's moving up from, from FCS. So the East Division, which is much more loaded than the West. You've got Appalachian State, who's always good. Coast Carolina, they bring back Jamie Chettle and Grayson McCall, but that's about it. They got to replace a ton everywhere else. You got Marshall, who's always a solid program, moving into the league. And you've got Georgia State, which has quietly been a very, very solid program under Sean Elliott. Hasn't gotten over that hump yet, but I've got four teams in the East Division that I think could win the conference, really. And in the, and then in the West, it feels like Louisiana's probably the favorite, even though they're going to take a step back. They lost Billy Napier. They lost a lot of players, either graduated or followed Billy Napier to Florida. But the rest of that division is pretty low, uh, even adding Southern Miss in there. So um, I would say Louisiana there. But that East division is going to be pretty stacked. Um, you're, let's uh, uh, stop on Coastal Carolina for a second here because you're right. Uh, you know, th- last year's team – so two years ago, they had their breakout season uh, in the pandemic, catch everybody's attention. Everybody loves the sh- the, the, the shots. Um, we all learn where Coastal Carolina is. Um, I, I got my Mormons versus Mullet shirt uh, from that BYU right, game. Right, the BYU game. Uh, last year, come back to the pack just a little bit. I mean, McCall was brilliant. He gets hurt, uh, banged up. But again, uh, come back to pack just a little bit. I, I'm really fascinated to see what happens here because – as you said, Billy Napier moved on to Florida from Louisiana. Chadwell has been the other up-and-coming star coach in this conference. Um, hasn't quite had the opportunity to move up. McCall is still there. I think in some ways this is a pivotal year for Coastal Carolina as far as, first of all, Chadwell and Coastal Carolina is, was this just a moment in time where you had the the hot coach with the hot quarterback and can it be replicated or are you going to be closer to Appalachian State where you're always going to be at the top of the conference? You have a program and a mentality and a culture that will manage to move forward and be successful even when McCall goes, even maybe when Chadwell goes. So I think this is that's what's most interesting about Coastal Carolina to me. Is this a a a program that is that has built sustainability even after McCall and Chadwell. And I think we'll get a glimpse of that this year because they can't be good if it's just McCall carrying the team. Right. And 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 I got to say you know a lot of people were surprised that Jamie Chadwell, you know, didn't get another job that Grayson McCall uh, didn't transfer to somewhere else. He he famously announced, you know, when he said he was staying that that he pissed teal which i think is one of one of the great <laughs> off-season quotes uh, of the year but but you're right this is it's it's a young program it's not that old they were successful at the fcs level they moved up it didn't really continue until now you know appalachian state's got two decades of consistent success you know louisiana's had you know a decade of consistent success can coastal 
keep that going in, in the future. We'll, we'll have to wait and see until the day that Grayson McCall is no longer there. But, but you know, this year's team, they open up with Army, another one of those kind of sneaky, interesting week one games. And they've got uh, Buffalo, which will be an interesting non-conference game. So they play Appalachian State. They play Marshall. Uh, they don't play Louisiana. They've they got James Madison, obviously. So there's a lot of tricky games on the schedule. And last year's team was interesting. They go 11-2. and two. They lost the two games by a combined five points. Like you think they're not that far from being undefeated, but they also struggled to beat South Alabama. They struggled to beat Troy. They, uh, they had some strange games in there. So Grayson McCall is going to be a quarterback. It's really interesting. Is he going to get into that NFL conversation? Cause he's got a couple years of eligibility left if he wants to. And it does he become the kind of guy that NFL teams are interested in and he leaves early or not. It's possible him and Chadwell stick around for a few more years. You know that, that that's possible as well. So a lot of lot of um, a lot of long term uh, interesting questions on on coastal. Okay, you can pick out of either division. Maybe give me one or two that you got your eye on. Well, that same question of okay, maybe not a conf- maybe not a, a team that's going to win the conference, but somebody who at the end of the year that is picked in the second tier of the division that you got your eye on as a possibility of getting into the first tier of their division uh yeah yeah, just one from each side well i kind of mentioned them before but i i want to say georgia state in the east division you know they beat coastal carolina last year something georgia state fans really want to remind people of you know they were (laughs) one of those teams that beat coastal they go six and two in the league they've made four bowl games in five years you know, eight wins last year, I think, was the most in, in school history. That's been a really solid program. They've been really close to upsetting Louisiana a couple times. So it, they could be a team that perhaps tries to get over the hump. The West Division, it's a lot harder to pick because there's not a lot to work with there. But I'll be interested in South Alabama. You know, they went four, five and seven in Kane Womack's first season there as head coach. They lost Jalen Tolbert, a really good wide receiver. But um they could be a team that gets to a bowl game in year two and uh, again, maybe kind of plays spoiler a bit. So the conference that the Sun Belt kind of rated last year and is still to be rated, we were really a little worried about whether Conference USA was going to actually continue to be a conference um, going forward. And it looks like they will. They, they, they managed to piece some things together for the future. And they still have a bunch of teams that will end up in the AAC in 2023. But for this year, Conference USA exists as a little bit of a hodgepodge. It's always been a little bit of a hodgepodge. Um, it, it's, you know, honestly, it's, it's hard to get your to get a, uh, uh, your head around this conference. UAB has become a bit of a star in this conference. Uh, now Bill Clark unexpectedly stepped down. That was one of those things that happened while I was on vacation. It was like, wait, what? Like, you know, a few things happened while I was on vacation. The Big 12 got a new commissioner. USC and UCLA moved to the Big Ten, and Bill Clark stepped down. And, and there were times when Bill Clark no, stepping no down there, right? would have been big news, but that one was just like, man, I I just don't have the I just don't have the bandwidth for this. Um, it was literally it was the same day Clark stepped down the same day I think as as UCLA oh, USC. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. I did not even realize it was the same day. So yeah, it's kind of hard to get your ha- head around Conference USA because it, it's who's coming, who's going, who's here. Um, again, UAB has established itself as a pretty good program. Let's just start there. Bill Clark steps down. Um, 
I had heard that there had been some talk about that for a while within the program. So it maybe didn't come as such of a stunner. Now, you, you, you I'm sure, reported this out better, much better than I could have. I just was hearing about things. But I, I do wonder, like, how, how well situated are they to continue the success they've had under Clark under new leadership? Yeah, actually, quick trick. It was not the same day as UCLA. You see, I was thinking of something else. Anyway, yeah, look, there, there's two ways to look at this with, with UAB. One is they've had an incredible amount of consistency on the staff over the years. Both of his coordinators have been with him, I think, since the program came back. So David Reeves on defense, Brian Vincent on offense. Brian Vincent, who's been with Clark for a long time, taking over as head coach. So it's theoretically as smooth as a transition that you can have. And, and UAB's got talent coming back. It's a solid program. Uh, so, so that's good. The flip side is you think about the similar situation that happened a year ago at Ohio. Frank Solich steps down unexpectedly due to health issues. Mm-hmm. He'd had coordinators with him for a long time. Tim Albin steps in, and they had a disaster of a season. So can they keep it going? Can they not? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see with, with Brian Vincent. That's still to be determined, but this is a program that had won, that had become the first team in conference history to make three straight conference USA championship games. They won two of those, and they won nine games last year, but it wasn't enough to to get past UTSA. So this is a – it also probably helps that this is now a an 11-team no-divisions conference as opposed to a 14-team two-divisions conference last year. Uh, that – obviously plays the role in kind of who gets into where. So UAB comes in, in in a real spot of transition, but it's a job that I do think moving forward, whether they keep Brian Vincent or not, it is now a really solid job with good facilities, moving to the American. There was a lot to like about what's at UAB, and it's kind of wild to think about it when the program was shut down not that long ago. Right, and UAB is is one of the favorites. They come in here as, you know, again, they've established such a good uh, you know, culture and and recruiting base in that program, they come in as one of the favorites again, though they will not be in the conference for very much longer, just one more year. Another team that will be also leaving for the American is UTSA, which was, again, one of these teams that emerged as a darling last year under Jeff Trailer, the new coach there. Uh, the Roadrunners had a breakout season. Um they seem well positioned to be good every year, to continue to be good. Um, bring back their quarterback, Frank Harris. Um, one of the reasons why they were invited to the AAC is because they seem like a, a, a program that is well positioned to be good every year. Um, do do our favorite Roadrunners, do they do those guys have, have a chance to repeat it as the conference champions this year? Uh, what's the What does that look like going forward for Jeff Trailer? Yeah, they're my pick as the favorite. They bring back Frank Harris at the quarterback and some really, really strong wide receivers. Um, what they do need to replace is running back, where they lost a couple of guys, including Sincere McCormick, and uh, several key spots on defense. And look, UTSA, I think they started 10-0 and or 11-0 last year. They had, they had some bounces go their way, you know, some turnover luck here and there. So it's maybe they're not going to be undefeated top 25, you know, at, at one point this year. But the program, it's another program that's only about a decade or so old. As of only a few years ago, they basically didn't have any facilities. And now they've got a new athletics facility. They've got uh, they've got Jeff Trailer locked down to a, a really long-term contract with a pretty big buyout 
Um, and they've got the move to the American house. So things have really changed in two years. And, and Jeff Trailer, beloved by Texas high school coaches because he is a former Texas high school coach himself. He is co on the, he, he, him and Joey McGuire, Texas tech are on the cover of Dave Campbell's Texas football magazine, the, the biggest thing in Texas. So everything is moving up and up and up for UTSA for this season. I'd still make them the favorite just because of what they have coming back and just kind of the way the rest of the league shapes up at this moment. So, after you get past UAB and UTSA, which again, I think even if there is some regression in those programs are most likely going to be pretty good, right? I mean, like we could say that, well, maybe somebody else sneaks in and becomes a conference uh, title contender, but it, it seems like the floor at both UAB and UTSA is pretty high as well as a pretty good ceiling there. And I got to tell you, Chris, when I look at the rest of the teams in this conference, I see a pretty wide variance possibility, even with the teams that I think might be good. I mean, you know, just, you know, just because I got my Phil Steele in front of me, like thinking like UTEP is pick third here. You know, UTEP was a really fun story last year. Uh, Had a breakout under Dana Dimmel, went to a bowl game for the first time in a long, long time. But like just to use them as the miners and as an example, like I don't think it would be terribly shocking if all of a sudden UTEP like really fell off and won four games and I sort of look at almost all the teams here and think like maybe eight wins if everything comes together maybe three wins so uh, uh, am I am I reading that kind of do you think I'm reading that correctly do you think there's more there's a couple of programs here that have a little higher ceiling or excuse me a higher floor where you where, where you feel confident saying like I'm pretty sure this team is going to be at least pretty good yeah, I, this league had seven teams win five, six, or seven games last year, very Mac-like, and I think that's going to be the case again. You just there's a lot of teams in this conference where like, eh, if, <coughs> if things go the right way, they might make a bowl game, essentially, and that, <laughs> right, that's right. where you're looking at a good chunk of these teams. Two, two teams in in particular, I, I I'm interested in Louisiana Tech. They go three and nine last year fired Skip Holtz, who went on to win the USFL this, this spring. That's a program that had been consistently solid for a good chunk of time. They, they, they fell off with one bad year, but there's still a lot of talent in place there. Sonny Cumbie comes in after running the interim job at Texas Tech, and I've heard a lot of people say really good things about him, and, and they like what they can do there. I think Louisiana Tech should be winning more than three games. I think they'll be they'll – be, in a bowl game and, and could potentially do more just because the ceiling there has been much higher in recent years. And then the other is Charlotte, which has had a very funky two years that an incredible amount of postponements and cancellations during the COVID year of 2020. And then last year they finished five and seven losing to, to middle Tennessee in the final week to miss out on a bowl game. And they made some staff changes. The defense was a mess, but they've got Chris Reynolds, their quarterback who, who's very talented. And that's a team in Will Healy's fourth year, I think now that they need to be better. They need to be minimum bowl game. So those are two schools that need to do a lot better than they did last year. Right. Will Healy and, and Charlotte are also Charlotte's another one of those schools that's moving up out of, into the AAC. And again, mm-hmm. that's looked at as a team with a ton of 
upside as a program, not as a team, but as a program. But you're right. I mean, and we also, you know, Will Healy was this interesting story because he's, I don't know, he looks like he's 26, uh, but but he's a young. He, got the, he was 30. He was 30 years old when he got the Austin B job. Yeah, he's a very young coach who's got a lot of energy and he's got a good sense of how to like, you know, sort of, you know, quite frankly, draw some attention to him in the program. Uh, but it hasn't totally clicked there. Uh, and I'm interested to see if, you know, again, maybe maybe that is uh, with a, in a conference like this, as we say all the time, as we said earlier in the show, in a conference like this, there is a, lots of um, opportunities for upward mobility. Somebody is going to click and it's all going to come together and you're going to look at them at the end of the year, much like UTEP did last year and be like, holy cow, that team won eight games. Wow. Mm-hmm. Charlotte, to me, at least could conceivably, but it also would be a very good time for that to happen as it moves along or prepares to move along into the AAC to start realizing some of that potential. Let's move to the Mac. Everybody loves the Mac. Last and definitely not least, definitely not least, because everybody loves the Mac. But boy, the Mac has been very, um, has been a, a, a place where we haven't seen a lot of, it, it was not that long ago when PJ Flex team went, undefeated and ended up in a New Year's Six Bowl. And there was, uh, before that, uh, Jordan Lynch and NIU played in an Orange Bowl. Orange Bowl, right? Against Florida State, if I remember correctly? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the MAC and, and it was producing a lot of coaches that were moving on to bigger jobs. And it seems like the MAC has lost a little bit of that. It's still a very interesting conference and a super competitive conference. But all, all of a sudden, it seems more and more like the ceilings have come down for even the better MAC programs. And what you end up with is, again, entertaining because they're all bunched up. And the difference between a contender and a and a and a second division team is really you know just a couple of points and a couple of bounces. So I say that it ended up being a great uh, a way for NIU to rebound last year, going from were they winless the year before? Yeah, they were zero and six. Yeah, zero and six in the pandemic year to winning the conference last year. So uh, all that is an interesting setup for me to say. Give me. Try to make sense of the Mac for me, Chris. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Sun Belt has kind of become the new Mac in that it's a breeding ground for coaches in a low resource conference. And I think with the Mac, you know, as you've seen talent in the Midwest kind of dry up a bit, and you've got all these teams in this conference that are essentially equally resourced. A couple schools have maybe some better facilities, but they're all generally on the same page. And you get end up you end up getting like half of the team finishes with half of the league finishes with six wins. You know, it, it seems like that's where the league is going a lot of the time. Now, last year, Northern Illinois rebounded to win nine games. They also lost five, and then Central Michigan also went nine and four, beat uh, Washington State in that last minute um, right. Sun Bowl. <laughs> so th- there is, I-, I think, a lot of um, upside at places like NIU and, and Central Michigan. The coaching situations there, the quarterback situations there. Uh, I think you feel good about those two teams. And then outside of that, it's a lot of kind of similar questions. Is this going to be another seven win season for Toledo? Or is it a season where they can get back to nine, 10 wins like they used to? And I think you can ask that of a lot of teams in this league. You know, that's the one program, Toledo, that 
if again you talk about resources and facilities, listen, I'm not going to lie here. I haven't been on every Mac campus. I've been on a few. You haven't been, you haven't been to the Glass Bowl. No, but I have been to the Glass Bowl, okay. and, and and that's what I was going to say. Like Toledo is the one that I've always felt like from being there, seeing some of the others, and then hearing from you know coaches that might have a little bit of an advantage when it comes to the facilities and the glass bowl and things along those lines. And it also has had the ability to maintain success while some Mac programs sort of uh, uh, jump up and down, you know, like a heartbeat monitor. Um, Toledo, even in its rougher years, hasn't really gone too far down. That said, ever since Matt Campbell left and Jason Campbell, Candle took over, they haven't clicked and really hit a, a high point. And I'm wondering if there is, if that's in there somewhere for, for Toledo. Uh, generally pretty good. Um, haven't really maxed out or feel like there's a little, they've, they've left a little bit on the table. And I'm wondering if maybe this is the year where, where it kind of all comes together for Jason Candle and Toledo. And maybe Jason Candle becomes a coach who, as he was a couple of years ago, his stock gets bumped up again. Yeah, I, I think he's a coach for a while that people thought he would get there, but they just keep losing so many one-score games. They go seven and six this year, losses by three points, two points, three points in overtime, three points, and seven points. They just they I don't know if it's end of game situations, close game situations, or what, but this team just can't quite get over the hump. They nearly won at Notre Dame last year. That game that was on Peacock that Everybody got Peacock just so they could see how that game was going to end. They lost to Northern Illinois by two, and they lost to Central Michigan in overtime. Like, flip a couple of those games, and suddenly you're talking 10-win Toledo again. But this is how it's been for a while. They go 4-2. and two. They go 4-2 and two in, that, in the 2020 season, but they, uh, but they lose to Western Michigan on the fake spike game at, at, at the end of the game, and it ends up kind of costing them uh, getting into the, the MAC championship. It's just, there's all these games – one score games that they just don't pull out. And, 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 you know, this is now the seventh season for Jason Candle there. And yeah, you kind of wonder, can they ever get back over that hump? They, they've been very, very close, but they just haven't been able to do it. And over in the East, I know a lot of teams we've talked about have been in the West, but over in the East, it, it looks like maybe Miami is the favorite again. Um, you know, Kent State has certainly drawn a lot. Of, we talk about young coaches. Sean Lewis at Kent State has a little bit of that shine on him because they do some very interesting things offensively, but they haven't quite broken through to the extent of, you know, winning a conference. Um I so I'm, I'm you know I, I I have I think that Mo linguist at Buffalo between what the fact that Lance Leipold left behind a program not necessarily a roster but a program that has become more stable and I think I like what I see out of Mo linguist and they've done some interesting things in recruiting that have gotten some attention so maybe there's some maybe there's a, a rebound coming for Buffalo but they seem like they might still be a year away uh, over in the east since we've talked about some of the west teams who do you look at as the favorite well speaking of Mo Lingost as we were recording this he uh, received a contract extension at Buffalo coming off that four and eight years so they they clearly like what he's doing they've attacked the transfer portal a ton they've lost guys but they've really reshaped that roster Mo Lingost took over after spring practice in 2021. Yeah. So there, there was nothing almost impossible. Really he could do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was a really, really tough situation. So I would expect 
a much better season from Buffalo. Miami of Ohio, they're always going to be really solid in the MAC. You know, a couple of years ago, they were a young team. They upset Central Michigan and won the MAC in what everybody kind of thought was a year early. I think it was 2019. 2020 was going to be the big year, but then COVID happens and everything kind of gets thrown around. They go seven and six again last year. So they've been solid, but can Chuck Martin really get them over that hump where they have the big 10 win type of season? And one of the craziest stats of last year involved Miami of Ohio. They beat North Texas uh, in the bowl game that was cobbled together at the last minute so everybody could get a bowl game. That was their first non-conference FBS win in more than 10 years. Oh, my goodness. They had a 31-game losing FBS non-conference losing streak going back to 2011. Yet, year to year, they're always really solid in the MAC. Like, they'll finish above 500 in the MAC most years. Very, just very strange dynamic with, with what's going on at Miami there. So, I don't know if Miami's they, – they haven't gotten that 9-10 win season, even though even when they won the MAC. So, I don't really know kind of how much you can ever really trust them in that spot. And then Kent State, they lose Dustin Crown, the, the big quarterback, uh, but, but but Sean Lewis, the, the head coach, is still there. He's brought them their most consistent success in decades – and that's even just getting to a bowl game for them is considered a major success. He was one of those kind of hot young coaches he's been for the past couple of years. He's still there. How will they look post Dustin Crumb? All right, Chris, we have hit all the G5 conferences with Chris Vanini, who is the the uh, the expert on all things G5 for the athletic. Um, we've kind of hinted at where you might be going on this, but I'll put you on the record. Um, who ends up being the best of the G5? I don't think it's going to be another playoff year for the G5. That seemed to be uh, the stars aligning for Cincinnati last year. Uh, and again, you saw, I think you've sort of hinted at where you might go with this. But who wins? Uh, who, who ends up as the highest ranked G5 team that plays in the New Year's Six? I'm going with Cincinnati. Uh, but Houston is just right behind them. I think it's really close between those two. I think they're both going to be really good. Houston's another team, non-conference. They open up with UTSA, Texas Tech in week two, Kansas week three. So if Houston happens to win those three games, they're probably top 25 team maybe at that point and getting a lot of attention. So Houston could get some momentum early on. Um, or it could go the other way if they lose. But I'm going to go Cincinnati. They won the last two. Luke Fickle's still there. They've recruited incredibly well. I'm going to stick with the Bearcats right now, but Houston just right behind them. Yeah, and as you said, both of those teams have schedules that that make you think that I, I don't know if it will, again, the stars will align again and will end up, I, I it seems doubtful that we'll end up with another G5 team in the playoff. But I think we could at least be having those conversations if if Cincinnati and Houston can beat some of those Power 5 teams early on in their schedule. And that could be fun. I, I think it's just interesting to have those teams as part of the discussion, and I hope that's the case going forward. Yes, it's it's fun when we have an undefeated UCF in the conversation, you know, as we kind of get into those playoff talks. Whether or not they deserve it or not, I don't know. But we've had more and more of those the last few years. You know, UCF's been in there. Cincinnati's been in there. The talent at the group of five, the quality of the teams at the group of five level over the last four years have really gotten better to the point where we're regularly seeing several of them in the top 25. And it's almost every season 
dating back at least a decade that there are more group of five teams in the top 25 at the end of the year than there are at the beginning of the year. They don't get the respect at the beginning of the year, but they generally earn that as the year goes on. And so I would expect that probably to be the case once again this year, where it takes a little bit of time to figure out who maybe those group of five teams are that we really like. Coastal comes out of nowhere, stuff like that. But uh, there, there's a good football here, and it's always it's always fun to watch. Chris Vanini from The Athletic, thank you so much for joining me today and breaking down the group of five. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Joining me on the podcast, and this has become a, an annual event, and that annual event is the Notre Dame preview with Pete Sampson from The Athletic. Nobody covers the Irish better than Pete. Uh, Pete, thank you so much for joining me on relatively short notice uh, to talk about the uh, talk about the Irish. Absolutely. I feel like I get uh, the short shrift because there's no media day around Notre Dame with conferences. So I, I got to, I got to find other ways to talk about Notre Dame people. No, maybe soon. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not here to talk <laughs> about that. I, I, I have pledged to our dear listeners that on these, um, on these preview podcasts, we're going to try to steer away from realignment and off the field stuff and try to steer into on the field stuff. Um, and to start this, I feel like there's been a trend over the last couple of years. And if anybody really has no nothing to do for the rest of the day, they can go back and find our previous uh, preview podcast with the Notre, with Notre Dame, uh, for Notre Dame with Pete Sampson. And I think it usually goes something like this. It's me telling Pete, you know, Irish have a lot to replace this year. Maybe this is the year where they take a little bit of a step back, maybe nine wins, you know, pretty tough. You know, the schedule is always competitive. I could even see them slipping back to eight and four and Pete in a way that is not very, not Homer-ish usually tells me, well, I don't know. I think that they got this in line. They got this in line. They've been really running, running pretty smooth. I'm looking more like nine as a, as a, an absolute floor and probably more like 10. And now they've been how many years in a row winning 10 games? Five in a row. Yeah, so I'm usually wrong, and Pete's usually right. And I say all that to say I kind of have the same feeling again. I just keep finding myself getting back to this idea of like, well, you know, they're breaking in a new quarterback, and I really like the offensive line, but they've lost some key pieces here. And maybe this is the year they take a little bit of a step back, not a massive like, hey, they're only going to win six or seven games, but just a little bit of a course correction to which you, Pete Sampson, tell me what. I think that you might be right this time. 
Um, I sort of view Notre Dame as like 10 wins before felt like kind of a floor in the sense of like, I'm talking about like, if you talk to Notre Dame fans, you said, Hey, Notre Dame won 10 games. They'd be like, all right, 10 games again. Like it's, if it's turned into birthright this year, I feel like a 10 and two season would actually be very, very good. Um, and they're much more likely in my opinion to go nine and three than they are to push on to 11 and one, or, you know, sort of be in that playoff mix seriously, seriously. Um, in the November because yeah, you're replacing the quarterback, but you know, for, for all the good things Marcus Freeman has done in recruiting, none of that matters this season. Um, this is about him figuring out how to be a head coach for the first time on the fly, opening at Ohio state, hosting Clemson, not getting the good fortune that Brian Kelly did of Clay Helton at USC, but getting Lincoln Riley instead. So to me, it's, it's a much more difficult schedule than Notre Dame has played any of the last five years. Um, and you have a new head coach. So this is why I feel like you're going to have, you know, kind of a half step back a little bit this season. In addition to just sort of regular roster turnover, new quarterback, no Kyle Hamilton, that kind of stuff. Wow. Okay. So maybe this, so now I, I really want to avoid this, this like very broad conversation of what does that mean for Marcus Freeman moving forward? Because we know he's recruiting really well. And I feel like we're already jumping ahead into like what the market, how we will, how will we define the Marcus Freeman era and how will we, it juxtapose against the Brian Kelly era. Um, I guess what would be the, what's the, the formula for the most optimistic projection for Notre Dame I think that the if we're talking to like a realistic optimistic yeah, I mean, yeah I don't, real, realistic I'm not saying yeah. they run the table but let's say like that 10 win optimism yeah like it's get back to I, 10 and 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 what what has to happen to get yeah, back to 10 and two? 10 is re, 10 is very reasonable um you know going to Ohio State no one I don't think anyone's going to predict them to to get that one um but from there you have like kind of a nice build all the way to Clemson in November of games you should win. Um, but, you know, the first time you're a head coach and you're playing Mac Brown or uh, BYU is, should be up this year, that game's in Vegas. Like, those are games like Notre Dame has always figured out how to win under Brian Kelly. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that Marcus Freeman is going to figure them all out too, um, at least maybe not in year one. So, to me, it's like if you can – if you lose at Ohio State, win the games that you should – and then you split Clemson and USC that gets you to 10 and two. I, I think that would be a really good season. Um, and I think that, you know, Clemson is here. USC while it's at the end of the year and it's there is still like not where Lincoln Riley is going to take that program. I don't think so. Um, that's 11 and one probably is going to be, you lose at Ohio state and then you run the table the rest of the way. And I think 11 straight wins is a, is a huge, huge ask for a first time head coach. I would tend to agree with that. I would, let's say what, what does it look like on the field? In other words, what's the places where I'm not sure, but I, but you know what, I have some optimism here that this could happen, but I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. Cause the thing that jumps out to me is Wow, this offensive line could be really good. Yeah. And then you yeah. kind of look like Notre Dame of the, you know, I hate to compare guys to the to the Nelson 
line, but but there's a path here to like, wow, maybe it's that Notre Dame. Maybe it's just the Notre Dame that like just sort of mashes people. And again, the schedule is not as tough as maybe it has been in some past years. So maybe that's a that's a place. So again, like what what does it look like on the field if it goes very well? The I would say both lines are outstanding, but the offensive line, you bring back Harry Heastan, who coached the Mike McGlinchey, Ronnie Stanley, um, Quentin Nelson groups. So that's totally reasonable to me. Um, you know, Jared Patterson will probably move to guard. They should be very veteran in the middle. They have two sophomore tackles, one of them, Blake Fisher, who, and the other is Joe Alt, uh, whose dad played for the Kansas City Chiefs forever ago. But they think that the, both those guys are first round pick types down the road. Um, so what they have in their first five on the line, I think is outstanding. And if, I mean, if you can dominate both lines, um, their defensive line, I think is a little bit underrated nationally. Everyone knows who Isaiah Foskey is, but Jason Adamalola, their three technique is I think probably a day two pick. Um, Riley Mills is other defensive end. I think he could be a day two pick a couple years from now. So, I mean, they've got some dudes on the defensive line. And if you if you win, this, like, both lines decidedly, which they should in probably 10 of the 12 games with Clemson's defensive line is great. Um, Ohio State should be good on both lines. Every other game, Notre Dame will be better in the trenches, I think, by a wide margin. If they can take that strength and then, like, you know, like, weaponize it, then getting to 10 wins is completely reasonable, I, I think that it will almost be probable, but you've got to have some development. Um, you got to have that, all that good recruiting and talent come through on Saturday. So then no, at no point, well, I mean, you actually mentioned it when you sort of giving your, your overall roundup, but, but at no point in the optimism side, did we say like Tyler Buckner becomes a star? Um, I, th- I mean, that would, that could happen. I have a hard. Are we stretching into like real? Uh, okay, that's not realistic here. Yeah, I think that then you're stretching into a year from now. Um, you know, is he a star going into next season? Because it's like, how I don't know any star quarterbacks who have this kind of receiving core where it's kind of a lot of journeyman veterans. Maybe that was a really sort of good my next, freshman. Yeah, that was my next. Yeah, it's like yeah. I mean, Michael I, Mayer not, gets you a long way if you're a quarterback, sure. but it's like. Stetson Bennett had Brock Bowers, but he also had George Pickens, at least at the end of the year. Like they had some dudes on the outside. Notre Dame doesn't have any dudes on the outside right now. So it's, you know, that that's what makes a quarterback look really, really good. Um, you know, and, and Buckner to this point, I mean, he's thrown, I think, 35 passes in his career, started zero games, had a DNP in the Fiesta Bowl. So, you know, missed the spring game because he sprained his ankle walking around campus. It's um, he's got a lot. A lot to prove. I mean, they're very optimistic on him, but he's got. I gotta. I gotta see that before. Uh, before saying like, "Oh, Buckner could be a star." Okay, so why don't they have dudes on the outside? Because you know, there's some nice recruiting rankings here from a uh, Lorenzo Styles, from a from a Colsey. Like, are they missing on these players? Are you just being, again, trying to like set reasonable expectations and maybe there is a breakout among these guys? I know there's been a lot of talk about sort of like that next level playmaking player has been one of the things that has held Notre Dame back as good as Kyron Williams is and as good as they've had some that they're obviously the tight ends have been outstanding. 
And they've had some guys step up at receiver and be pretty good players who get drafted in many ways. Maybe Claypool was a guy who mm-hmm. like sort of really blossomed when he got to the NFL and maybe was underutilized in some ways or was a little bit of a late bloomer. Long lead up to say, like, why? Like, like why? Like, it seems like they, they've got some guys in this roster that have the recruiting pedigree to possibly bloom into a dude. Um, yeah. but are we still going to wait for the next recruiting classes to see that? Yeah, they just don't have the depth for it. Um, and I think that's the the problem. I don't know if it's a problem, but the reality that Notre Dame's living in is like when we talk about dudes on the outside, um, we're, t- we're talking about Jamar Chase. We're talking about Justin Ross, the freshman. We're talking about T. Higgins. Like, mm-hmm. you know, some of, some of these players, Notre Dame is or Devonta Smith, um, you know, the big time gravitational players like, you know, Michael Floyd or Golden Tate were uh, 10, 10 years ago. So they, you know, their recruiting has been poor. Um, they went through spring practice. There was a spring practice I watched where they had five scholarship receivers available. Um, they don't have depth. Like, I, I think if Notre Dame had a healthy roster, there would be about six Lorenzo styles on it. And instead there's just one. So that's, that's sort of the reality that they're living. I mean, that's why one of the first changes Marcus Freeman made was to bring in a new receivers coach, Chancey Stuckey. And lo and behold, they have three top 200 uh, overall prospects committed at wideout this cycle. That has never happened in the last 20 years. So they, they, ha- they have sort of, they've had guys here and there. Um, some have hit, some have missed. That's college football, right? Um, but they haven't had enough sort of rolls of the dice at the position. Um, so then you're, you're begging somebody like Tobias Merriweather, who is incoming freshman to be a go-to player or a, a reliable fourth receiver as a freshman. That's just, that's like not a way to win a lot of football games, unless the guy you're bringing in is a surefire five-star and Notre Dame's not recruiting at that level right now. What do they think about is Chris Tyree the, the next guy up as far as becoming the every down back? Because again, I think there were like he came as a pretty big time time recruit, yep. but but you also see like he's not that big, and maybe he is a terrific player, but maybe at Alabama he'd be a terrific guy who's a complement to a bigger running back. And is Notre Dame gonna make him the 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 lead guy? I know they have a, a freshman who is a little bigger guy, but I'm just saying, like, I just, I see a guy like Tyree and think at the, and again, I hate doing this to a certain degree because Notre Dame gets pounded over the head with, well, you're not the elite schools. Well, there's like three of them. There's like, yeah. I, I, yes, like Notre Dame is not Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State, but that's it. Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State are the, are, are, are unique as far as college football right now. But if we're trying to get there, the 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 idea is you have a stud running back that is like Kyron Williams and maybe even a little better. Like Kyron Williams is awesome, but how about like the next level of that? And it looks like what they're having this year is like is 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 a step back from Kyron Williams. It's definitely a step back from Kyron Williams. Like Tyree is an incredible speed player. He had more than a hundred yards receiving in the Fiesta Bowl, um, but I think he ran for about ten yards. Um, it's you know, Logan Diggs, they were very high on, and he he wrecked his shoulder in the spring game, is going to miss the first month of the season. They had a freshman, Jadarian Price, who popped his Achilles in summer conditioning. He's out for the year. So it's, you know, Audric Estime is a bit of a wild card. He's a sophomore 
barely played last year. He was, you know, he was a four-star prospect player of the year in New York. Um, you know, that they need something from him. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's sort of like the Lorenzo style situation at receiver, like having one Chris Tyree is great, but you really need to have two or three of them. Um, you know, in an ideal world, Will Shipley would be a sophomore at Notre Dame right now, not a sophomore at Clemson. That was sort of their guy, that recruiting cycle. And when they missed on him, uh, they sort of struggled to backfill it a little bit. So they're, they're a little bit short to me at the offensive skill positions. The rest of the roster, I think, is in really good position. Um, but at receiver and running back, they're, they're really like one or two stud recruits away from being where they need to be. So the big news related to Marcus Freeman becoming the head coach was also Tommy Reese remaining the um, offensive coordinator. There's a lot of high hopes for that. So technically, the offense should sort of stay the same. Now, Freeman brings in Al Golden as a defensive coordinator, which is an interesting hire because it's my sense of it. And I, I mean... I don't know if you've written it as such, but this seems like more of a Jack Swarbrick hire uh, and, and, a, and it's sort of a nod to the idea that Marcus doesn't have a really long Rolodex, right? Because yep. he's still a young coach. Um, I, I, I set those two things up to say, is there anything you're looking for schematically this year to be different? Like, what, what, you know, when you maybe not, I don't know if you're able to see this at practice, but when you're, when these games start being played, what is interesting to you about will they be doing X, Y, or Z? Like wh where could they possibly change schematically this year? Offensively, I am very intrigued to see how they use Tyler Buckner. Can they sort of create um, kind of almost like a quadruple option look, um, you know, shotgun snap, jet motion, fake, fake to the running back, throw it to Michael Mayer, chuck it to Lawrence Silas or take off. Um, Buckner is really athletic. And I think you have a chance to sort of put the defense in jeopardy on every snap um, if you scheme it up correctly. And I, I think that Reese is outstanding as an offensive coordinator. I don't, I don't think the Notre Dame fan base probably gives him the credit that he is due, um, you know, in part because he's not drawing up plays for Devonta Smith. Um, you know, they've, they've had to sort of scratch and claw to figure out how to make things work. So how, the, how they use Buckner in sort of these kind of quadruple option looks I think is going to be fascinating defensively I'm, I don't think there's going to be a huge change from um, Marcus Freeman to Al Golden as defensive coordinator even though Marcus has said hey this is this is Al's defense um, you know maybe it's a little bit more complex which I think you can get away with if you're starting three senior linebackers um, so that 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 will be interesting to me but mostly it's it's how does Reese get the most out of Buckner um, and sort of like get more out of him than a first time starter has any right to produce. Um, that, that is going to be a, a big sort of test case uh, for Tommy Reese, the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Is there anything, any result? Well, let's, let's put, okay. Obviously if they beat Ohio state, that changes <laughs> everything. I don't think that uh, college football is ready for Notre Dame to beat Ohio state with the amount of Marcus Freeman, uh, Love that would be coming. I mean, that's that's like Charlie Weiss beating USC in 2005. Okay, so so that's that point, and let's put that aside. Is there anything that could happen in Columbus as far as a defeat 
that could really make Notre Dame. You know, listen, the guy's already got a loss on his resume, and it was yeah. not a great. It was not, and it was a really. The funny thing was, if they had lost the Fiesta Bowl by that, it was the Fiesta Bowl, right? Yeah, they were the yep. Fiesta. If they had lost the Fiesta Bowl by that score, and all I told you is, here's the score, and they're playing without Williams and Hamilton. Is that okay? I, I, I knowing that there was all this changeover and that he was walking in, in into an odd situation, um, taking over when he did. I, I imagine most Notre Dame fans would be like, well. We really don't want to lose, but okay. I just wonder if, like, the fact that they blew the big lead made that seem a little more. Uh, that that probably made it seem a little more, uh, a little more frustrating for Notre Dame fans. There's definitely some side eye um, at, you know, Freeman after that game. Um, not a lot. I, you know, I, sure. I think that the Notre Dame fan base, by and large, so is like, okay, you're recruiting incredibly well beyond where Brian Kelly was. And you were up 28, seven in this game without your two best players. You know, it's, you know, it, I don't want to say it's like, I, I'm not saying it's a meaningless bowl game, but it's what, it wasn't like the college football playoff. Um, and I, I think that one of the unique things around sort of like the Notre Dame story this year, at least as it relates to the fan base and sort of interacting with people who follow Notre Dame is like, I think there's some real grace being shown Freeman right now by the fan base. I mean, we'll see how long it lasts, but I do think there's a, an understanding that this guy is growing into the job and he needs to be given time to do so. Um, and if there are some bumps along the way, there are some bumps along the way, but if you're going to recruit consistent top five classes, then I think for the most part, the fan base is willing to sort of, all right, we'll give you a few speed bumps um, if you're going to bring in that kind of talent long, long-term. So there's nothing that can really happen in that first week, or I guess, you know, is there anything that could happen that first week against Ohio state, which really, which, which, you know, cause this is the, the nature of college football and I'm trying to separate, you know, the, the 2% who are just always looking to, to, to jump off a bandwagon or to, or to jump off a cliff essentially that are always living on the edge. Um, is there anything that could happen in Ohio state that would be sort of jarring? for Ohio state fans. I mean, I, I mean, Notre Dame fans, are they sort of, how high is the bar as far as like what the beating could look like before Notre Dame fans <laughs> go, wow, that was a little worse than I, I signed up for. I mean, uh, a Michigan state game would be too far. Um, you can't be down 49, nothing at the half, uh, but well, that was a while ago. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, that was what, like last November. I mean, it, that was like the, the week. Oh, like the, oh, for, signed oh, that oh, extension. Oh, oh, I thought you're talking about like you know, like like some of the years when Notre Dame maybe got beat that. Oh bad. yeah, yeah. The dark no, I, I think that if if Notre Dame went out there, I'm just thinking of like recreate a Notre Dame result, and would people stomach it? Um, I, in some ways, I feel like even the Alabama game from Dallas, not the first okay. Alabama sure, game, sure. Um, but the game where you're like, wow, they're a lot better, but Notre Dame is sort of hanging around. I can sort of, see, I could see what they're trying to do. I, I get the game plan, but this is a recruiting problem. Mm -hmm. um, that might be that, might, I think that would be the limit. Um, you couldn't get into either of the Clemson games. I don't think um, certainly not the first Alabama game. Um, so I, those 
Those come so, to so mind. My, 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 cause I'm an old guy. My mind went back to like, so what about like Miami and Faust's last game? Oh yeah. No, that, that wouldn't do <laughs> it. I, cause, yeah. Cause I was referring to like Ohio state, Michigan state from last year. Yes, like an exactly. Ohio state right. Right. Um, right. Which was a pretty, which was devastating, but Michigan state had already built up a little credibility. at that. Right. Point. So, you know, it's like, I think that the Notre Dame games come to mind, like uh, Florida state in 2014 or Clemson in 2015, if it's a game like that where Notre Dame loses it late, I think that it will, for the Notre Dame fan base, it will feel like a win. Um, they, they sort of, or, you know, even the, either of the two Georgia games, you know, to, to find oh, something yeah, a little sure. bit more recent. Sure. So either, like if that result got replayed in Columbus, you know, where Tyler Buckner has the ball at the 50 yard line in the final minutes, you don't really think it's going to happen, but who knows? Um that I, that I think they would take that in a second as like as progress that okay this they're in a they're in a good spot because like you said it's it's Alabama it's Ohio State it's Georgia those are the schools at the top um, so before you beat those teams you got to be competitive with them um, and so that's I think that would show that you're competitive. Pete Sampson covers Notre Dame for the Athletic. A lot of people cover Notre Dame do a really really good job. No one does a better job than Pete. There might be some who do it close to as well, uh, but nobody <laughs> does a better job. Well, I have a lot of friends in the Notre Dame uh, beat. So, I, you know, as much as I love you, Pete, I also have to make sure I don't uh, insult anybody else. That's but fair. you do a wonderful job. And, uh, you know, again, I always appreciate you coming on here and filling us in on how the Irish will do this season. One of the more fascinating teams in the country, one of many blue bloods with a coaching with a new uh, head coach. And not just a new head coach, but a first-time head coach. So a lot going on with Notre Dame this season. They are always fascinating, and it will certainly be again this year. Thank you very much, Pete. Thanks, Ralph. And now, three and out. First down. We tend to overlook the independents, or we have in past preview episodes, at least those not named Notre Dame. So let me try to rectify that here, starting with BYU. The Cougars are coming off two straight double-digit victory seasons and return a boatload of key contributors, especially on the defensive side, where BYU leaned heavily on young players last year. Plus, in Jaron Hall, the Cougars have another intriguing quarterback who could take a star turn this season. Now, I will say, I think the Cougars overperformed as far as record last year. Credit Kalani Satake for winning 10 games with a team that was in transition. Frankly, nothing highlighted the Pac-12's issues last year more than, better than, the fact that a BYU team with so much turnover in key spots plus injuries at quarterback went 5-0 and against the conference. The Cougars faced five Power 5 teams this season, Baylor, Oregon, Notre Dame, Arkansas, and Stanford. I think reaching 10 wins again in the regular season might not happen. I would predict under. But BYU could still be a better team than it was in 21. 3, 2, 1. But BYU could still be a better team than it was in 2021 in overall performance. I think BYU starts ranked and ends the season ranked. Second down, Army has two straight nine-win seasons. Four seasons out of the last five with at least nine victories, including a couple of double-digit win seasons under Jeff Monken, the Black Knights have become a reliable commodity thanks in part to a schedule that doesn't force Army to bite off more than it can chew. Army brings back an experienced offense, including a quarterback, and one of the best defensive players in the country 
who people might not even realize. Andre Carter, outside linebacker, who had a ton of sacks and, and tackles for loss last year. Expect another eight or nine win season for the Black Knights. And most importantly, a win against Navy after losing to the Middies last year. Third down, FBS Solid Dwellers, UMass, UConn, and New Mexico State are all breaking in new coaches this season. They're all familiar names to college football fans. Jim Mora takes over at UConn. Jerry Kill is now the coach at New Mexico State. And Don Brown is at UMass. I'm interested in which veteran can find some success in the long run, but I doubt much will come this year. Lastly, it's Liberty, which still has you freeze, but no longer Malik Willis playing quarterback. Charlie Brewer, formerly of Baylor and briefly Utah, is the Flames' possible new starter this year. Liberty typically schedules in a way that should make getting back to a bowl game very attainable. But in its last season before joining Conference USA, I'm guessing Freeze will find out not having Malik Willis lowers the ceiling on Liberty. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you don't miss an episode. One last programming note before we go. The conference preview episodes roll on, and there are two more left, two more big ones, the SEC and the Big Ten. At least one will be coming next week. We may hold off the other one till the week after, or we may drop them both next week, but they are still to come. We have already had, and you can go back in your feed and find, the Pac-12, the ACC, the Big 12, to go along with today's episode on the G5 and Notre Dame. So you should have all the conference previews that you need to get the season started before the AP Top 25 College Football preseason poll drops on August 15th. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. <laughs>